Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jill Hillary, who is Professor of Accounting at Georgetown University. He's a founding member of the Circle K2, a French think tank on risk management. He's also a research fellow at the French Military Police Academy and a senior fellow at the Asian Bureau of Finance and Economic Research. Welcome, Jill. Well, Gil, thank you very much for your invitation. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers uh, from 2008. Um, it's entitled, Does Religion Matter in Corporate Decision-Making in America? You say we examine how corporate culture influences firms' behaviors, and more specifically, how the level of religiosity in a firm's environment affects its investment decisions. And you focus on the U.S. here uh, to minimize any legal and economic environments. So, so what did you find in this paper? Right. So, so uh, part of my research is uh, behavioral in nature, right? And yeah. uh, so, so that's one example of uh, that stream of, of research that I'm engaged in. Uh, so, this is co-authored with uh, Kai Wai Hoi, and uh, so we were curious to see if the environment in which a firm is operating uh, is affecting its, its, its operation. Uh, and more specifically, if like the, the type of people you're interacting with will affect the corporate culture of the firm. And so uh, what we did in that paper is that uh, we uh, got some data on how religious a given county in the US is, right? So how many people would go to uh, a place of worship now, since it's the U.S., it's typically a, a, a church, uh, but it could be uh, it could be any type of uh, place of worship, like a mosque or, or a synagogue or any other place of worship. Um, and then uh, we looked at what the literature and psychology is telling us about the link between um, religiosity and, and risk aversion. And, and we found several uh, uh, papers that focus on experimental evidence. Uh, suggesting that uh, there is a, a positive link between the two, like religiosity and risk aversion uh, are often correlated. And so what we did in that paper is we looked at whether uh, that extends to communities. And we find indeed that uh, when a firm is located in, in a place, in a county, uh, where a lot of people are going to a place of worship, then uh, that firm is uh, much more risk averse doesn't invest as much, uh, the cash flows are less volatile, and so on and so forth. Right. So, so religious religiosity are defined as the proportion of people attending a, a religious institution like uh, like the church or the mosque. That's right. Yeah, uh, in the in the county. So, not necessarily people uh, in that particular environment uh, in that particular organization. Uh, but people yeah. in the county where the firm is located. In the county. So um, this is a U.S. study. Um, 
wouldn't you wouldn't you get into some regional issues um, perhaps I, I don't know this uh, precisely certain parts of the US uh, appear to be more religious compared to others so would it be some sort of a geographic bias that might get into it? Right. So, so uh, I, I, I'm going to answer your question, but uh, before I do this, uh, we we actually conducted an experiment as well. It's not the core of the paper, but uh, we 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 gave people uh, uh, two texts to read: one on uh, uh, cathedrals in the European Middle Ages, and one on modern architecture in the U.S. And then we yeah. give them a, a, a test and we ask them, you know, essentially, will you take risky gambles or, or safer bets, right? <laughs> and what we found was yeah. uh, people who were a prime, people who read the text about the cathedrals were more likely to uh, uh, take the safe, uh, safe bet. Now, that experiment uh, was uh, conducted in Switzerland. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily just on the U.S. thing, right? So it's a human thing, but we focus on the U.S. Uh, now, to address your question, we, we uh, try to control for everything we could think of. Uh, and, and I'm not sure we want to get uh, to technicals here, but we, we use like fixed effects, county fixed effects. We control for yeah. you know, where the place is located, where the business is operating, what type of business we're talking about, um, you okay. know, all, all the things we could think of, right? Yeah, so control for all those things that might, that might affect this, uh, this finding. And so, um, if I if I understand this correctly, uh, Joe, so so your hypothesis here is that um, when you have higher levels of religiosity in a county, they seem to be more risk averse, and that's that risk aversion uh, higher than average, let's say, uh, should lead to some sort of economic or profitability metrics we can we can see at the firm level. Right? That's right. Um, so uh, the the bigger point was to try to link the the environment in which a firm is operating to its corporate culture, uh, but to make the the question more more concrete, more specific, uh, we link the uh, a social environment. Uh, to the behavior of the firm in terms of risk-taking, in terms of profitability and things of that nature, yes. Okay. Um, and, and so, yeah, I find this very interesting, Jill. So the, the, if the risk uh, aversion is higher, uh, firms would then require a higher rate of return on their investments, right? That's right. So holding the investment set constant, you would expect those firms to invest less. That's what we find. They will invest less. They so their discount rate is, is higher, and so projects that might turn out to be NPV positive elsewhere, uh, in these firms will will not be taken up because they will have a higher discount rate for the cash. Uh, that's that's right. Uh, but uh, our listeners should not fear from this that this is a bad thing, right? This is uh, this is a preference, <laughs> right? So. Uh, yeah. So some uh, communities have a preference for taking more risk and on average that generates more rewards but also creates more failure and some community have uh, some communities have the opposite preference right so what you're saying is absolutely true but uh, one should not infer that it's a bad thing from that. Yeah so, so I was thinking uh, Joel so you know when we look at the US there are pockets of you know high activity in startups. Uh, high risk, um, you know, type uh, high technology, uh, biotechnology, and so on. They appear to be highly concentrated. Uh, and I'm thinking Silicon Valley. I'm thinking Cambridge. Um, is there any connection there uh, between that? And so this? that would be a, a natural uh, hypothesis to uh, to test. But we we have actually not tested this in that paper. Uh, but that would yeah. seem like a natural extension to to this paper. Yes, you, 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 you're right. Yeah, okay, okay. And so for, for larger firms, um, if we take a sort of R&D intensity, you, you will see that, uh, that lower too, right? The, these firms uh, would focus on more um, more cash flow type businesses? Uh, so true? any type of investment, being it in, in uh, tangible assets or in intangible assets like R&D would be subject to the same uh, effect. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and yes, you would expect, uh, you would see actually uh, uh, less investment in R&D as well. 
destination R&D, and, and this would be especially worse if the R&D is long-term, I would think. Right, so the more risky the R&D is, so, you know, you could go for a moonshot or you could go for things that will, uh, you know, marginally improve your, uh, your production process. Um, so we don't test that in the paper, but uh, you would expect that the more uh, risky R&D project would be more affected by this, yes. Yeah. And then you note here that the long-term growth is also lower. So all these point to a much more conservative investment stance. Um, and and data is, is showing that um, when you have higher religious um, subscription, that that's what we're finding. Right? right. So when the environment is more religious, uh, controlling for everything else, uh, this is uh, this is what we find. Naturally, it's an on average results, right? So, you, like any any uh, results, you can find counterexample. But on average, this is what we find. Yes. And they're statistically significant. You say here another observation here is uh, is related but somewhat different. You say we document that CEOs are more likely to join firms with similar religious environment as a last firm when they switch employers. Um, so could you, could you sure. explain that? Um, so again, the premise of uh, this study is to see if uh, uh, the, the, the environment of the firm is affecting the culture. Uh, and, and we had a follow-up hypothesis, which was that uh, some managers are going to be more comfortable operating in certain environments. Uh, and so the way we uh, looked at this uh, secondary uh, hypothesis here is by saying, okay, suppose you were uh, an executive at a firm and you leave that firm for whatever reason and you join another firm, uh, is the environment that you leave a predictor of the environment that you join? And indeed, that's what we find. Uh, so looking at the religiosity of the environment in which you used to be an executive is going to predict uh, the religiosity of the environment uh, in which you're going to operate with your new uh, employer, with your new firm. Uh, so there seems to be a clientele effect, right? Some managers are comfortable in more risk-averse environments and, and others are, are less comfortable. Uh, again, nothing wrong with one or the other. It's a preference. It's a preference. And would it, uh, would it also indicate that the CEOs in more conservative firms I tend to switch jobs less. Is, is, I, I, I know that you didn't look at that, but I wondered if that was also true. Uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, hypothesis, right? So, so uh, if, if indeed uh, there is a greater risk aversion, you might change uh, jobs less often. Uh, but I don't know if that uh, prediction is supported by the, by the data. Yeah. Um, what, is, uh, what is your... You know what is what is your thinking? Why is religion um, uh, religion forcing risk aversion? What what is yeah? So so at, at the individual level, uh, there has been some uh, studies in in neuroscience, uh, and and uh, I'm probably not the right person to do uh, justice to uh, those studies, uh, but it's possible that part of the brain that is uh, associated with both risk aversion and religiosity might be uh, activated. Uh, at the same time. Um, so that's, you know, the small experiment that we conducted when you read about uh, religious buildings, you become more risk averse. Uh, and, 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 you know, we did that in a room and if you were sitting on the left, you, you got one text. If you were sitting on the right, you were sitting on the, you, you got the other text. So it's totally random. Um, so there seems to be something in the brain that, uh, that, that flips or that is activated uh, when you think about religion. Uh, the exact mechanism, I'm probably not the right person to do justice to explain this in, in great details. Yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting. And, and, the, and the counter example, they, they could, it could also be looked at, right? So I wonder if we can show that atheists are uh, much more risk-seeking, <laughs> anything like that? Do you have seen anything? Uh, no, so it depends a little bit like... Uh, how you define atheist, right? So if you define atheists are people not yeah. going to church, then then that's the complement of what we have, right? But uh, if you define atheists are people who have like affirmative beliefs in the non-existence of God, 
then I'm not sure. Uh, it is possible that if you're an atheist, but you read a lot about religion, for example, uh, that you might end up being uh, risk averse as well, right? Uh, so it's not clear if it's the belief itself or the exposure uh, to the topic that is uh, affecting the preference. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. So um, what we're really looking at is really the process of adherence to religious norms and religious conventions. Um, you know, I, I don't know this, but uh, we cannot really assume that people who go to church are, are necessarily religious. <laughs> Maybe they're going to church for you know other other reasons, uh, perhaps for community, for for other things. So, so I wondered if there is a distinction between religious and then adhering to sort of the religious norms. And uh, that's certainly possible, and, and and again, it might be also the exposure to uh, religious topics, right? So, if you go back to the experiment that we did, we have no reason to believe that people who read about the cathedrals were more religious than the other half of the room, right? Mm. But they were exposed to religious materials and that affected their preference. Uh, so I, I don't have any evidence for what I'm going to say next, and I, I certainly could be wrong, uh, but I'm, I'm conjecturing that it's actually more the exposure to the religious uh, uh, subject uh, more than the belief themselves that is uh, generating the effect that we identify. Um, yeah. And that's also why, you know, looking at the community level uh, kind of makes sense uh, versus looking at the individual practice of the people working in the uh, in the firm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the neuros neuroscience angle is very interesting. Um, you know, it's almost like I, I don't know anything about it, but it's almost like there's some sort of a fear or more sensitivity to fear, more sensitivity to risk, and that seemed to translate right across um, across different decision making processes. Right. Um, so you know, uh, my training is in economics to a large extent, and you know, we tend to uh, take preferences as exogenous, right? So they are given by you know Martians or you know uh, someone somewhere. Uh, but but of course, in in reality, that's not the case, right? Those preferences have to come from somewhere. Uh, and, 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 you know, to some extent, that's what we do in this paper. We looked at where the preferences are coming from, right? So, uh, and an economist might say we are endogenizing the preferences, right? Right, yeah. yeah you have another, uh, you have a working paper um, uh, on trust and contracting. Um, and it, it's somewhat related, um, but you're focusing on uh, trust here in the community environment. And you said trust is a complex concept that has been examined by many scholars from different disciplines using various settings and methodologies. Uh, for the purpose of the study, you say we use a construct that emanates from economics. So. So, so, you, so looking at trust and, and sort of the cost of cost yeah. So, so that's uh, so. First of all, that paper is co-authored with uh, Sterling Huang, uh, and and we we kind of looked a, a bit at the same topic or broad topic, like you know, to what extent are uh, community norms, community features uh, affecting the behavior of economic agents, and and in this case of of, of firms, right? Uh, but instead of looking at religiosity, we look at uh, a trust, right? So we define trust as the, 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 the subjective probability that uh, someone will help you, or at least not hurt you. Uh, and, and again, we look at trust uh, in the community as opposed to uh, trust within the organization. Uh, and, and, and what we find is that uh, when people tend to trust other people more, uh, you can use uh, uh, different types of, of, of contracts to manage firms, right? So uh, so our listeners might be familiar with the notion of uh, incomplete contracts, right? So an incomplete contract essentially, and I, you know, I'm not doing justice to the concept, but uh, that says essentially, you know, do the right thing and I will reward you. Uh, as opposed to saying, yeah. okay, if you do exactly that, then I will do exactly this. Uh, and, and, and so... 
if you can rely on those contracts, that's nice because uh, you can use the knowledge that the manager, that the, the executive has of the situation uh, to let him or her uh, doing what's right. Uh, and, and, and so if, if you can trust uh, that person to do the right thing, then this is better than telling the person uh, what he or she uh, should be doing. Uh, and that's essentially what we find. Uh, we find that uh, in counties when, where uh, people trust each other more, uh, firms tend to use uh, a flatter contract, so something closer to uh, a salary as opposed to, uh, you know, we give you uh, bonuses or stock options if you, uh, if you increase the stock price. Uh, and, and loosely speaking, that works better. Uh, we see that those managers don't uh, waste resources as much. Uh, and they tend to deliver greater value for the uh, for the shareholders. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Jill. The the early uh, theory of the firm, Ronald Coase and others, um, was about uh, minimizing the cost of contracting, uh, cost of transactions, more generally. And in the gig economy. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, we don't really have needs for big companies in the future. And so this is becoming more and more. I think trust is fundamental. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's a huge asset uh, for, for a country, for a culture, for a company. Uh, if you, if you, if you, if you enjoy it, now you can cultivate it, but sometimes it's sort of given to you by, you know, history or, or something that you have no control over. And, and, and when that's happening, then uh, that's a great advantage for that, uh, that culture. Uh, unfortunately, and that's not the paper, but that's more personal belief, uh, I think trust uh, is becoming uh, harder to sustain, um, at least at the community level these days for a host of reasons. Yeah, as they say, you know, it takes a lifetime to build trust, but you can lose it in one right, transaction. Right, right. And there are also like broader uh, uh, technological and social evolutions that are, you know, impacting cultures and maybe not for the best uh, in terms of culture, in, in terms of uh, trust. Yeah, and I also wondered, you know, in a society that is more prone to legal um legal maneuvering let's call it that um whether you can um really change uh change the culture to be more trustworthy maybe the initial conditions are so bad i wondered if it's even it possible. is it is challenging it is challenging um i mean it, it's it's not really what we do in this paper but other people have shown that there are, are deep cultural effects or so some culture or you know, for whatever reason, more uh, uh, trusting than others. Uh, and that effect can last for, yeah. for generations, right? So if you look at the level of trust in the countries from uh, where people immigrated to move to the U.S., uh, so it could be in the 19th century, uh, you see that in counties where uh, that particular group of people is located today uh, is still affected by the trust uh, you know, from, from the past, right? So if you have a lot of Swedes in, in one area and, you know, Sweden, I think uh, immigration from Sweden was in the 19th century, if I remember correctly, in the U.S. So if trust level was high in, in Sweden at the time, then counties were, you know, those folks would move to, would still have a high trust today. And conversely, if you're immigrated from a country where uh, trust was low at the time of immigration, you can still find the effect on the local culture in the U.S., uh, you know, century later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you say in the paper, um, we hypothesize that the level of trust commonly observed in a given community affects the way firms located in that community behave. This is very analogous to the religiosity uh, we just talked about. So there is a property of the community in which the, the firm is uh, based and the firm uh, behaves in a certain way, uh, given that property. Uh, but then you're looking at in the paper within, within organizations, right? Um, and so sort of the interplay between organizational culture and, and, and the community in which the organization That's right. is based. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, we look at contracts again. We looked at the type of investments, the economic performance. 
uh, again conditioning on uh, on on the uh, environments of, of the firm. So to some extent, we we you know the two papers are you know speaking to each other. Uh, perhaps one difference between the two is uh, you know religiosity is something that doesn't evolve too much, right? So it takes a while before cultural norms or cultural practices would, would change. Uh, but in the trust paper, uh, we also looked at a sudden shock to trust, right? We looked at what happened when uh, uh, community leaders are misbehaving and what that does to, to trust. And, and that's, not, that's not good in that shell. So we couldn't do this in the uh, religiosity paper. Was there any, um, uh, did, you, did you look at any sort of firm performance? Again, yeah. So, uh, so what we find is that the performance of the firm is is higher when it operates in environments where more people trust each other. Yeah, you waste uh, yeah. uh, less resources trying to uh, maximize your uh, you being the the executive, maximize your own welfare, uh, and instead you end up doing what's right for the uh, for the company. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking that um, because people use trust as a, as an important proxy for decisions, it has a downside um, because, you know, if you look at financial markets like private equity or venture capital, um, people tend to invest in others that they know from previous transactions. So it has that it, it has the net effect of perpetuating a small group of people uh, getting capital um, than others because the the if you don't have the initial conditions, it's really That's difficult right. to That's break right. into. Uh, and the more uh, the less uh, trusting uh, uh, community or culture is going to be, uh, the more the effect that you describe is uh, likely to happen. Yeah. 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 And then I would imagine the CEOs have a big effect on the firm culture too, right? Uh, I have seen some large companies culture change in a matter of months uh, with the change. Uh, of yes, could be. Um, I mean, like, so when I uh, teach about those issues in class, I, uh, I, I, I often talk about a company called Tyco uh, that no longer exists now, but uh, uh, was caught into a, a scandal. And there was a new CEO who was brought in and he completely changed the, uh, the culture of the companies within uh, within a few months, right? But he had to uh, uh, change the leadership uh, to a very large uh, extent. Uh, yeah, uh, so you're right. But yeah, one would have pres presumably to take fairly extreme measures like the, the, the gentleman who came to that particular company, uh, you know, uh, changed the leadership, I think, like, like pretty much everyone in the top 100 uh, uh, of the firm uh, moved on, if I remember correctly. A, a very large proportion of the leadership was changed. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you mentioned this. So one of the things you examine in the paper is the effect of a sudden negative and exogenous shock on communi community trust uh, caused by misbehavior, you say, by leading representatives of moral authorities. In this case, you're looking at uh, the sexual abuse by Catholic priests, um, so, the, uh, so, 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 what's the what's the conclusion here in terms of right? So, so one issue this? when you're a researcher and you look at the culture of the firm is that you're you're dealing with what is known as endogeneity, right? So you don't know what are the causes, what are the effects, right? So, uh, when when you do this type of research, what you're trying to do is to find a shock that is uh, clearly coming from the uh, from the outside. Right. Uh, and so uh, so here we wanted to have a shock that would affect uh, community norms, community beliefs, uh, but that would not come from the behavior of the firm. Uh, and so we, we, we focused on uh, uh, Catholic counties uh, and uh, we looked at what happened when there was the revelation that uh, many priests had uh, abused uh, uh, different people, but uh, children in particular. Um, and 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 that obviously came as a as a big shock for many uh, many Catholics, right? Uh, and and so what we what we found was was two things. Uh, one, uh, that uh, shock negatively affected the trust in the community, uh, so people started to trust each other much less. 
uh, when the, the scandal was revealed. Uh, and in turn, this drop in community trust affected the firms located in that community. Uh, and, and, and so the advantage that uh, some of those firms held because they were located in, in uh, counties where people trust each other, uh, kind of lost that advantage uh, when the trust uh, dissipated. Yeah, that's really interesting. So this property that a community has, it's, it's highly nonlinear, it's highly interconnected and um, it, it is not really firm specific in any way. It's really a property of the community. And that can get destroyed um, with, 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 for you know, many different factors. None of that. that that's right. So we're, we're absolutely not saying that uh, our trust within the organization is not important, right? But uh, it's much harder for, yeah. for researchers to show that it does matter in a causal sense uh, because the performance of the firm and the culture of the firm and the type of executive that you have, all those things are highly endogenous, right? They are, you know, co-determined, right? So trying to disentangle one from the other uh, is challenging. Uh, so instead, what we did was to focus on on community norms, right? And and we did different things to uh, ensure that the community norms were not affected by the behavior of of the firms that we looking at right one of the things was to look at this uh, shock uh, and so to th that aspect you're absolutely right it's not something that firms control uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't some aspects that the firms could influence yeah I was just thinking uh, Jill that um, you know if you look at small countries um, and you know if there's some sort of a bad thing happening uh it could have not just you know sort of community-wide or firm a few firm effect it could have a no, absolutely effect, uh, right? absolutely uh, i mean smaller communities smaller countries are going to be more susceptible by to be affected by a specific shock right because you can't diversify the the, the consequences as much uh, but smaller countries might also have a more uh, homogeneous culture, right? So when there's a shock to the culture, uh, then that shakes that country more more deeply than if you have a broader country. Uh, now, of course, this is everything else equal. Uh, some countries are very fragmented and in spite of being small. Other countries, in spite of being really big, are relatively homogeneous, right? Yeah, I mean, pe people have, you know, sort of this country risk factor where they make investment decisions. And this is sort of a systemic factor, right? So so let, let me <laughs> let me make a statement. You can correct me if, if this is not, cannot be true. Uh, if, if a culture is more homogeneous, if the country is small and the culture is homogeneous, the country has higher risk. Uh, because it's very brittle in the sense that it will be very, uh, very prone to a shock that could substantially change its, um, uh, you know. Its um, so I, I don't know if what you're saying is true, but uh, but I think that's certainly possible, right? Uh, uh, at the same time, if you're more homogeneous, you might have a more resistant uh, uh, culture. Uh, what, what, one thing that I always find depressing is that uh, one thing that would negatively uh, affect trust is uh, the uh, heterogeneity in the population. So we tend to trust people who look like us. Uh, and so when you've got more diversity, yeah. there's often less trust. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, right? Diversity also brings like some many advantages and, you know, I could see the benefits of diversity, but there is also a cost in terms of, 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 of trust, right? Uh, and so a smaller, more homogeneous country might have a more resilient uh, culture to shocks, uh, but it cannot diversify them. So I don't know where we end up with this, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it could also be a handicap of our generation, uh, Joan. And so when we say we have higher trust in people who look like us, it's really a remnant of the past for the next generation yeah, it's a very different thing. Uh, you know, what they mean by somebody who looked like them is somebody who communicates with them over the web or in social media. 
in a way they can actually internalize. So I think <laughs> we might be changing. So it's po it's possible, aspects. right? But you, you could imagine some uh, evolutionary uh, uh, functions that have led to this, right? So like, you know, people from other clans might be more likely to be hostile. And so you trust people from your clan, right? Uh, now, of course, the point that you're raising, which I think is a very valid one, is how do we define clans, right? So uh, back in the in the days, you know, where people living close to you looked like you, right? Uh, but in the modern age, uh, you know, how you define someone who looks like you might be might be different, right? Maybe not physical appearances, but maybe more like the behavior or, or the beliefs that this uh, person has, right? Uh, that remains to be seen, though. I, 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 I think those those factors have been there for a long time, and I, I'm not sure if that aspect will, will disappear in the near future. Yeah, yeah. We'll take a quick break, uh, Joe. When we come back, we'll talk about a couple of your other working papers. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Uh, Jill, we were talking about uh, properties of communities um, where firms are located and how those properties actually affect firm performance and firms' decision-making, properties such as religious intensity, trust, and so on and uh, how those things could be changed by external shocks. Um, you have another working paper, which is in, in some sense related, um, self-segregation and labor movement, in which you explore the relevance of a well-established theory in social psychology to self-segregation by examining 9-11 terrorist attacks as an exogenous shock to Islamophobia. I want to talk a bit about that paper. Sure, happy to. Um, so, so as you said, we uh, we focus on a, a theory that comes from psychology. Uh, it's known as mortality salience or MS. Yeah. And and so what this uh, MS theory is saying is that uh, when we are reminded that uh, we are going to die as as individual, uh, we tend to refocus on our core identity. Uh, and what that means is going to be different for different people because the way we define our identity might be might be different, right? So for some people, that might be well religious to continue on the theme. Uh, it might be the countries they belong to. Uh, it might be the university you went to, or or you know whatever, right? Uh, but that's that's essentially the 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 idea, right? Uh, and, and so we applied that in the context of uh, uh, decisions of making decisions about where you want to work and where you want to live. Uh, again, we're going to be focusing on executives because we got more yeah. data on, on, on this population. And I guess we, we understand perhaps this population better than, than other uh, social groups. Uh, and so what we did in that paper is we looked at the effect of 9-11. Of on uh, the behavior of executives and more specifically where they wanted to work. And what we found was uh, if you were uh, an executive living in a community with a more visible Muslim presence uh, right after 9-11, uh, you were more likely to leave your firm, uh, controlling yeah. for everything we can think of, uh, and to move to uh, a community where there would be a, a less visible uh, Muslim presence. Uh, now, to be clear, this this MS theory is not a theory about the risk of dying, right? So, yeah. uh, it's 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 it, you know it's not driven by you know the fact that you were living in New York or in DC, uh, where the attacks uh, occurred to a large extent, uh, but it's more like a refocusing on your on your core identity, uh, and then we have what what's known as comparative statics, so things that would exacerbate or, or mitigate that finding, uh, for example, you've got a lot of hate groups in the community, it's more likely that you would actually leave your job. Uh, conversely, if uh, you know, you've got more social capital, people interact with each other more often, 
then you will be less likely to to leave your job. Uh, so that's in a nutshell what what we what we do here and. Um, there, there's obviously a, a lot of interest in the U.S. and elsewhere about, you know, segregation, right? So, like, you know, yeah. some some group being excluded from from certain part of the country or certain services or certain, you know, uh, uh, things they can do. Uh, there's perhaps a little bit less focus on on, on self segregation, like why a group would would separate. Uh, yeah. But more importantly, uh, I think bringing this theory to the discussion is somewhat new. The theory has been there for, for, for a long time, uh, but people have not really uh, examined the implication of that theory for uh, self-segregation. And, and so that's what we, we did in that paper, or we attempt to do in that paper. Yeah, so um, similar to uh, the previous things we were discussing, so some sort of an exogenous shock to the system leads to uh, people self-segregating around smaller subgroups of people that they trust? Uh, yeah, people who essentially uh, uh, look like them, to, to use a casual look like right? them. So yeah. uh, I don't mean this literally, but like people who share the same identity, right, would be a better way of putting it, right? Uh, so, so if you think about the three papers we have discussed, right? So the first one we we took religiosity, social norms, completely as as exogenous as given, and you know in that context we didn't look at things that could change that. Uh, then in the second paper we looked at a, a shock to to morality as a way to uh, change local trust, uh, and 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 here we looked more at the uh, factors that may affect. Uh, uh, the type of people would live in community and would leave this community, right? Yeah, I have a very cynical thought, um, Jill. Uh, if, a, if a politician were using this as a strategy, then the politician requires exogenous shocks to the community at some regular interval. <laughs> right, but, you know, if you... If you uh conjure images of, of, of death on on regular basis uh, you might yeah. actually get uh, the same the same effects right so if you're running yeah. political ads with uh, a death angle for lack of a better word uh, you may you may have a situation where people refocus on their core identity and and depending on the political situation that may or may not be to the advantage of, uh, of certain politicians right yeah, such, such a politician uh, wants to keep people afraid. Uh, and it has to be sort of a continuous information flow that will, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of conditioning the, the community to be afraid. And that has beneficial effects in some ways. Uh, it could have beneficial effects for the politicians, yes. Yeah, for the politicians, yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I want to move on to a couple of uh, your other papers. One of them is mandatory data breach transparency and insider trading. Um, you said using the standard adoption of state level data breach notification laws, we examine whether mandatory breach disclosure affects insider trading. And so, so I don't know much about this, Jill. So uh, different states have adopted sort of different standards for notification. Yeah. So, so uh, maybe before I get to the the details of that study, uh, uh, I mean, trust is something that I'm interested in, right? And and I, I'm also interested in technology and naturally the interplay between the two, right? Uh, and, and and so I, you know, technology has a lot of effects, some good, some bad, but. The, the, there's going to be a need to to regulate somehow the development of, of technology. And uh, I believe probably the best way to do this is, is uh, through social norms, but that's that's hard to to, to change as we discussed, right? So then yeah. uh, you probably need some uh, uh, legislation, some legal elements uh, to do this. Uh, and, and, and so that's what we kind of looked at in this paper uh, with uh, uh, two other uh, co-authors, uh, Xiaoni Tian and Chi Chen. Um, we, we essentially looked at uh, a piece of legislation or a series of legislations at the state level uh, that essentially says, well, when there is a breach, if you're an organization and uh, there's a breach that is material, and materiality is not always defined exactly the same way, 
you need to uh, to do something about it, and and usually that means you have to tell uh, you know the public about it, right? Uh, sometimes the authority, sometimes the public, but usually the public, right? Uh, and and so uh, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, and we wanted to see, okay, is this working, or can we have some uh, some some you know adverse effect coming from this? And and so the way we thought about it was to uh, focus on insider trading, right? So as you know, insider trading is a situation uh, where uh, in, insider executives, for example, have some information, uh, and the uh, the buyers the sell stocks of their own company uh, based on this information. Uh, it is often illegal, but not always. So there are ways you could legally trade, uh, you know, using information. Uh, and, and so we wanted to see what's the effect of, of this law, because these laws are not designed to protect investors. Uh, they are designed to protect uh, consumers and citizens. Uh, and, and, and so what we found in the study is that when, when the law is really uh, strict, uh, then uh, firms end up like investing more in cybersecurity, and uh, yeah. you know you don't see as much insider trading as you you, you saw before the passage of the law. Uh, yeah. But when the law is not that strict, uh, instead of uh, investing more, uh, executive trades on on the risk of of uh, future breaches. Uh, and so that's one of the negative effects of this law. Uh, and, and we thought that was interesting because, uh, you know, if one is not careful, like the law designed to protect a certain type of people, consumers here, uh, might, might end up uh, harming other people's investors in this case. Yeah, so, so I'm thinking that there's some sort of an optimization, right? So uh, regulation has caused and uh, generally, if it is compliance type uh, regulation, it doesn't really add much economic value to society. So, so there has to be, there is an optimum level of regulation that, uh, I'm just making a statement, correct me if I'm wrong, Joel, there's an optimum level of regulation that extracts the right behavior from the firm uh, and you have to keep it there or something along those lines. Um, uh, yes, I think that's that's generally true. Uh, now here we're not making a statement as to whether those laws were good or bad, right? Because uh, I yeah. mean, on, on the one hand, uh, when they're really strict, uh, you see more investment. So, you know, uh, consumers and, and, and citizens are protected. Uh, you see some negative effects when they are, you know, weaker. Uh, and we don't speak about the cost to the firm. So we're not saying it's optimal or, or, or suboptimal, right? So it's not so much the level we're considering in this study. Uh, not saying that your point is not valid, but that's not what we, we look at. Uh, rather, the point we're trying to make here, the broader point we're trying to make is that one has to be very careful when you use uh, this type of laws because uh, they can actually make things worse uh, because you're changing the behavior away, to, away from what social norms might have uh, uh, suggested people to do. And if you're not careful, you're, you're, you're going to end up in a worse situation. Yeah, it's, um, the, the, if the objective is to, um, is to reduce the likelihood of a crash, you call, call this uh, vehicle loss lead to an increase in idiosyncratic crashes you know, some sort of discontinuity, some rogue trader or something along those lines that that essentially takes a firm out, a big discontinuity as opposed to sort of small uh, problems going on uh, that doesn't really surface because they are small, but it is continuous. So, so I wondered, you know, the, the laws and the cyber-related investment are two different things for these two things, right? Uh, yeah, so the law does not mandate that uh, firms should invest more. Uh, so each each law is different, but but you know I'm going to speak uh, of the the laws as if uh, they were they were the same. Uh, what they typically suggest is that you tell the public about it, right? So you're imposing a cost to uh, the firm uh, when there's a breach. Yeah. 
because your reputation might be affected because you know uh, the regulators might start looking at what you're doing you know that might be other costs right uh and 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 then sort of leave it at that right and so if the penalty is sufficiently large uh then firms like want to mitigate the risk uh and they uh they invest more in cyber investments so the two things are not the same thing but you see an increase in cyber investment uh after uh, strict laws have been passed. When weaker versions are created, you're you're essentially creating an additional risk. And instead of uh, investing, you see the uh, uh, the uh, executives like protecting themselves at the individual level by by selling ahead of the problem. Yeah, then bonuses are more important uh, than the firm itself. So, so I want to finish up with your, um, I think this is a book chapter, Jill, uh, Artificial Intelligence and Fraud Detection. Right. Uh, you say fraud exists in all walks of life and detecting and preventing fraud represents an important research question relevant to many stakeholders in society. And with the rise of big data and artificial intelligence, new opportunities, opportunities have uh, arisen in uh, using advanced machine learning models to detect fraud. I did some work in this area, Jill, about five years ago, where we used accounting data to train um, train a model. Um, this is supervised machine learning. So we have past instances of um, fraud actually happening, and we have accounting data when you know fraud happened or did not happen. And such data might be useful to train a model that can be then, uh, you know, let uh, de you know be deployed on emerging accounting data to to assign some sort of a fraud score uh, to that data. You're talking about something along those lines. Here? Yeah. So, so that that particular piece co-authored with uh, Yang Bao and Binke, and uh, it's as you said, it's part of a, of a book where I'm, I'm the co-editor with uh, Vlad Babish and uh, uh, John Berger, who uh, I think were on your podcast in the past. Uh, we, 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 we in the book uh, look at the interplay between operations, finance, and technology. Um, and so, you know, the first papers we talked about were more about like regulation through social norms. And then the last one was more regulation through, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the legal aspects. Uh, this one is more like, okay, practical uh, things one can do using tools, right? Um, and so, yeah, we try to, to uh, discuss the advantages and the drawbacks of using uh, new technology, artificial intelligence. It's really machine learning. We call it artificial intelligence because that sounds yeah. more sexy, but it's really more machine learning. Uh, and and uh, but we try to be uh, fairly uh, uh, objective, right? In the sense that, like any other new technologies, it brings good things and bad things, right? uh but you're absolutely right so one one thing that you can get out of this technology is uh, uh, the estimation of some sort of uh, score that will predict the likelihood that uh, there's uh, some sort of fraud and in particular accounting fraud right uh, so yes we, we're yeah. looking at that's one of the things we're looking at yeah and um the other type of uh, machine learning you could do on accounting data, as you know, is unsupervised machine learning. So, um, you know, again, we can use these techniques to look for patterns in the data. And even if you don't have an ex ante expectation of fraud uh, in those patterns, that those patterns could be interesting to further further analyze, right? Uh um, yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right, right. Uh, but that's contingent on, uh, so, you know, at some point the fraud has to be revealed, right? Otherwise it's going to be very hard to use unsupervised techniques, right? Uh, so if you think about yeah. credit card, right? So most frauds will be detected eventually because, you know, people see their bank statement, say that, you know, they've been billed for something they haven't bought, they call the bank and, you know, so it might not be caught on time, but it's eventually caught, right? Uh, accounting fraud, it's, it's, it's harder, right? So the SEC, the regulators will catch some of those cases, but not all of them, right? And then if you move to something like, you know, uh, anti-money laundering, for example, right? Uh, the proportion of, of, uh, of, of, of bad things that is caught is, is probably way smaller, right? Um, so you're absolutely right that one could use uh, uh, unsupervised techniques, but I think it depends uh, on the type of fraud that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. So in conclusion, Joe, um, going back to the, the few papers that we discussed, there's sort of a common thread 
in the papers, as you said, you are very interested in trust, sort of, sort of a common foundational uh, aspect. Um, but, you know, we talked about religiosity, we talked about other things in the community that affects the firm. Uh, there is also a trade-off here, right? So uh, if the firm um, tries to cultivate trust by reducing diversity, as you mentioned, uh, it has a downside, obviously. Um, it, it, it affects the firm's performance in many other dimensions. And so, so what's your general thoughts on that uh, from a design of the firm perspective? Looking forward. Right. So this is obviously a very uh, sensitive topic at the moment, right? Diversity in the, uh, in the U.S. and I guess outside the U.S. is something that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, there are a lot of, res of, of, of uh, research articles that have shown the benefits of diversities for, for the organizations, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I, I generally agree with uh, the, the findings of those studies, right? Uh, Perhaps what we have spent less time collectively looking at are the cost of diversity, right? Uh, and 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 yeah. so you know uh, that that's probably happened for a host of reasons that have nothing to do with academia but the broader <laughs> world, right? Uh, that may be the next step, right? So like trying to understand what are the cost and the benefit of of, of diversities from the point of view of the organizations, right? Uh, and, you know, it might be the conclusion that diversity brings so much benefit that when there is a cost, you know, it's well, cost of doing business, essentially. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure we have established that yet, right? Uh, so hopefully, you know, in the years to come, then people will, will, will look at this and, and, and get a better sense of uh, what's the best way to deploy diversity, if, you're, if, you, if you will, right? Uh, you know, we achieve greater diversities, but, you know, when the benefits are maximized, right? Now, of course, that's from the point of view of the organizations. Uh, society at large, you know, individuals might have different uh, uh, benefits. Uh, and, you know, we might be in a situation where it makes sense to force organizations to be in a position where they don't have the optimal level of diversity from their point of view, because it makes sense from society. Uh, point of view. But before we get to that point, I think we need to understand the benefits and the costs for, for everyone. Yeah, it's um, there are two types of diversity, I think, right, Jill? So, you know, um, in 2009, in one of my books, I argued that uh, in the future, uh, there will be no no firms, there'll be only individuals. So we, you know, sort of the extreme gig economy where um, the definition of the firm is not static. We, the, the firm is the individual. And so the diversity there is really in transactions. How does that individual transact externally? And there, um, diversity is almost a necessary condition for that individual to maximize profits. Uh, that's... It's possible, uh, but I'm not sure it's necessarily obvious, right? So uh, yeah. th there's no discussion that there was an increase in the gig economy over the last few years, right? So that's certainly a fact. Uh, and, and, and that happened because people saw the benefit of doing this, right? But I think people are starting to see the cost as well, right? Like anything, it has cost and benefits, right? Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, that type of... Uh, organizational uh, paradigm might be uh, uh, growing or, or might be, uh, you know, decreasing in the future, right? Uh, the role of diversity in that uh, in that sense is going to be interesting to to look at, right? Uh, there's going to be more communication between people from a technical point of view, uh, but then we will be probably dealing with cultural challenges that we touch on today, right? And 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 so I, I, it's it's not because you can talk to more people that you're end up t talking to people who are more different from, from yourself, right? Uh, if you think of, you know, TV in the U.S. in the, I don't know, like 60s or 70s, whatever, you have a few uh, network channels and pretty much everyone was looking at, was watching them and, and, you know, they would speak to the middle of the road. But then when uh, cable appeared and internet appeared, then you saw that the uh, networks got more and more specialized, right? Uh, and, and so you might actually uh, lose diversity because it's easier to communicate with people. Right, right. 
Yeah, it's a it's a moving uh, set of uh, variables, firm size, uh, transactions between firms and individuals. Uh, what exactly is a firm, multinationals, all sorts of things. So it's just a moving target. I yeah, uh, and yeah, exactly right. So and, you know, sort of continuing with the theme of our conversation today, you've got you've got you know the interplay of of cultures, broadly speaking, the law. And then technology, right? And and uh, you know, technology firms today are, are powerful enough to affect social norms and certainly to affect uh, the the legal aspects, right? Uh, and, and so it's a very complex situation to to understand, but it's it's probably what's defining our our time at the same at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Jill. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure, and uh, you know, I hope your listeners will uh, enjoy it as much as I have. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.